All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton standing in the confessional corner. And this week, we get to look at Article 7 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, the first half of it. We're finally done with going through Articles 4 and 5 on justification and love. But since justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls, 4 and 5 will show back up from time to time throughout the rest of the apology. But for now, we get to look at what is the church, who is in the church, and the differing definitions between the people in the 16th century and even today. So this week we are going to look at Apology, Article 7, paragraphs 1 through 22. And we begin with 1 through 8, as it's a large paragraph to begin our study. They have condemned Article 7 of our confession, in which we have said that the church is the congregation of saints. The adversaries have added a long essay stating that the wicked are not to be separated from the church, since John the Baptist has compared the church to a threshing floor on which wheat and chaff are heaped together, Matthew 3.12, and Christ has compared it to a net in which there are both good and bad fish, Matthew 13.47. This is a true saying. There is no remedy against the tax of the slanderer. Nothing can be spoken with such care that it cannot escape ridicule. For this reason, we have added Article 8. Let no one think that we separate the wicked and hypocrites from the outward fellowship of the church, or that we deny power to sacraments administered by hypocrites or wicked men. There is no need here of a long defense against this slander. Article 8 is enough to acquit us. For we grant that in this life hypocrites and wicked people have been mingled with the church, and that they are members of the church according to the outward fellowship of the signs of the church, that is, of word, profession, and sacraments, especially if they have not been excommunicated. Neither are the sacraments powerless because they are administered by wicked men. Yes, we can even be right in using the sacraments administered by wicked men. For Paul also predicts the Antichrist takes his seat in the temple of God, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. In other words, he will rule and bear office in the church. But the church is not only the fellowship of outward objects and rites, as other governments, but at its core it is a fellowship of faith and of the Holy Spirit in hearts. Yet this fellowship has outward marks so that it can be recognized. These marks are the pure doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments in accordance with the gospel of Christ. This church alone is called Christ's body, which Christ renews, sanctifies, and governs by his Holy Spirit. St. Paul testifies about this when he says, And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Those in whom Christ does not act are not members of Christ. The adversaries admit this too. The wicked are dead members of the church. We wonder why the adversaries have found fault with our description that speaks of living members. Neither have we said anything new. Paul has defined the church precisely in the same way that it should be cleansed in order to be holy. He adds the outward marks, the words, and the sacraments. For he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 25-27. In the Confession, we have presented this sentence almost word for word. The Church is defined by the third article of the Creed, which teaches us to believe that there is a holy Catholic Church. The wicked indeed are not a holy Church, 
The words that follow, namely the communion of saints, seems to be added in order to explain what the church signifies. The congregation of saints who have with each other the fellowship of the same gospel or doctrine and the same Holy Spirit who renews, sanctifies, and governs their heart. Okay, there are paragraphs 1 through 8 and a ton of stuff to go through here. But the editors of the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, the Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord, and even other editions of the Book of Concord have the same thing. So we're going to look at it piece by piece here. Paragraph 1. They have condemned Article 7 of our Confession. The Roman theologians condemn the article that the church is, in itself, the congregation of saints. Rome adds a long essay about the church being a threshing floor with saints and sinners involved. And yes, that is very true. But again, as Melanchthon goes on through this, and especially as we look at paragraphs 7 and 8, we look at the creed and we talk about the one holy Christian and apostolic church. There are no sinners in the holy Christian and apostolic church. Now, on the outside, yes, there are wicked people and hypocrites who just come to church in order to be seen by people. The Pharisees did the same thing, and Jesus berated them in the Gospels. But the church of Jesus Christ that we talk about, the holy Christian church on earth, is the communion of saints. Plain and simple. Only those who have faith in Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And yes, we have John the Baptizer and Jesus talking about the church being a gathering place where there is wheat and chaff or good and bad fish. And that is true in this world, but in the world to come. And when we talk in the communion liturgy about the whole host of heaven being joining with us in the communion liturgy and the singing praise to God, it is only saints in heaven. So we skip down to paragraph 3. So Melanchthon added Article 8 in the Augsburg Confession because he knew Rome would condemn the idea that the church is in itself the congregation of saints and not of saints and sinners. So he says, Let no one think that we separate the wicked and hypocrites from the outward fellowship of the church. Mark those words, outward fellowship. Or that we deny power to sacraments administered by hypocrites or wicked men. Many people have this issue, especially when a pastor who has baptized their children or confirmed them or married them falls away and ends up being defrocked, losing his ordination. And they go, are those things still valid? Do we have to have the kid rebaptized or do we have to get remarried? No. God uses sinners just as much as he uses saints. Why? Because we are all sinners. I mean, we cannot say that the church is not full of sinners because every last one of us, when we come to the confession and absolution during the divine service, say, I, a poor, miserable sinner. We don't deny it. But it is in that absolution where we are reminded that we are also the congregation and the gathering of saints. And again, this is all on the outward fellowship, the external 
things, the people who actually walk into the church building. But, Melanchthon goes on in paragraph 5, the church is not only the fellowship of outward objects and rights as other governments, but at its core, it is a fellowship of faith and of the Holy Spirit in hearts. That is what the church truly is. It is the fellowship of faith in the Holy Spirit. The word and sacraments serve as outward signs so that people may know where the church may be found, so that people who are looking for where the true church is, where people are truly speaking the word of God and administering his sacraments properly according to Jesus' institution, they need to see that. So therefore, there are outward signs. It is not just like a Quaker meeting where everybody sits in silence until somebody spontaneously gets the Holy Spirit upon them to give a word. That's not the way the church works. The church works because the Holy Spirit is around us, and we have these external things to show outsiders, but also to remind ourselves of what it is that we have when we come to worship in the congregation. In paragraph 6, Melanchthon talks about dead members of the church, that those in whom Christ does not act, of course, are not members of Christ because Christ is not acting in them. You know, the wicked are dead members of the church. And Melanchthon has one of these wonderful lines that we see in the Apology over and over again. We wonder why the adversaries have found fault with our description that speaks of living members. Melanchthon's like, we're worried about the living members of the church. We're not worried about the wicked and the hypocrites. We're worried about those who are truly coming to seek the Lord where he may be found. And he goes on, 7 and 8. The church is defined by the third article of the creed, which teaches us to believe that there is a holy Catholic church. The wicked indeed are not a holy church. But I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the third article says. That is what the church signifies. The congregation of saints who have fellowship with one another in the gospel and in the Holy Spirit. All right, we move on to paragraphs 9 through 11 now. This article has been presented for a necessary reason. We see the infinite dangers that threaten the destruction of the church. In the church itself, the number of the wicked who oppress it is too high to count. Therefore, this article in the Creed shows us these consolations in order that we may not despair, but may know that the church will remain until the end of the world. No matter how great the multitude of the wicked is, we may know that the church still exists, and Christ provides those gifts he has promised to the church, to forgive sins, to hear prayer, to give the Holy Spirit. It says church Catholic in order that we may not understand the church to be an outward government of certain nations. Rather, the church is people scattered throughout the whole world. They agree about the gospel and have the same Christ, the same Holy Spirit, and the same sacraments, whether they have the same or different human traditions. The explanation appearing in the decrees says, the church in its wide sense embraces good and evil. Likewise, it says that the wicked are in the church only in name, not in fact. The good are in the church both in fact and in name. To this effect, there are many passages in the Father's. 
For Jerome says, the sinner, therefore, who has been soiled by any blotch cannot be called a member of Christ's church, neither can he be said to be subject to Christ. So far, paragraphs 9 through 11. In the church itself, there are so many wicked people that oppress it, that cause divisions among members and among churches and congregations between clergy and congregations. And it could be members of the congregation, could be the clergy, either one, because all of them are sinners. But Jesus reminds us that he will be with us to the end of the age. So the church will also remain until the end of the age. And then it will be divided. The wheat will be separated from the chaff, the good fish from the bad fish, the sheep from the goats. Many, many different points of view on this. But the church itself will remain forever. No one can take away from it. And how do we know the church is still here? There is still the forgiveness of sins. There is still prayer. The Holy Spirit is still working to create faith in people. That's where we know the church is truly here and will be here forever. All right, we move on to paragraphs 12 through 15. Hypocrites and wicked people are members of this true church according to outward rights, titles, and offices. Yet when the church is defined, it is necessary to define what is the living body of Christ and what is in name and in fact the church. There are many reasons for this. We should understand what chiefly makes us members, living members of the church. If we will define the church only as an outward political order of the good and wicked, People will not understand that Christ's kingdom is righteousness of heart and the gift of the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. People will conclude that the church is only the outward observance of certain forms of worship and rites. Likewise, what difference will they be between the people of the law and the church if the church is only an outward political order? But Paul distinguishes the church from the people of the law, Israel, in this way. The church is a spiritual people. It has not been distinguished from the, the pagans by civil rights, its polity, and civil affairs. Instead, it's God's true people, reborn by the Holy Spirit. Among the people of the law, apart from Christ's promise, even the earthly seed had promises about bodily things such as government. Even though the wicked among them were called God's people, because God had separated this earthly seed from other nations by certain outward ordinances and promises, the wicked did not please God, Deuteronomy 7, 6-11. But the gospel brings not merely the shadow of eternal things, but the eternal things themselves, the Holy Spirit and righteousness. By the gospel, we are righteous before God. The true definition of the church is the living body of Christ. Because Christ is living. He lived, he died, he rose again nevermore to die. So that he is the ever-living Son of God raised from the dead. And therefore his body is also a living and active body. Which is why we need to look for those filled with the Holy Spirit. To be among the spiritual people of God. Because if God just set up another kingdom, Jesus lied to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. But Jesus says... My kingdom is not of this world. And he tells even the disciples over and over again that his kingdom is not of this world, but that he is preparing an eternal place, a place of rest for everyone. 
We continue on in paragraphs 16 to 22. Only those people who receive this promise of the Spirit receive it according to the gospel. Besides, the church is Christ's kingdom, distinguished from the devil's kingdom. It is certain, however, that the wicked are in the devil's power and members of his kingdom. Paul teaches this when he says that the devil is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. Christ says to the Pharisees, who certainly had outward fellowship with the church, that is, with the saints among the people of the law, as office holders, sacrificers, and teachers, you are of your father the devil, John 8.44. Therefore, the church, which is truly Christ's kingdom, is properly the congregation of saints. For the wicked are ruled by the devil and are captives of the devil. They are not ruled by the Spirit of Christ. Why say more when the matter is clear? If the church, which is truly Christ's kingdom, is distinguished from the devil's kingdom, it follows necessarily that the wicked are not the church since they are in the devil's kingdom. It is true that because Christ's kingdom has not yet been revealed, the wicked are mixed in with the church and hold offices. But the wicked are not Christ's kingdom, even though the revelation has not yet been made. For Christ enlivens his true kingdom by his spirit, whether it is revealed or is covered by the cross, just as the glorified Christ is the same Christ who was afflicted, John 17, 1. Christ's parables clearly agree with this. He says the good seed is the seed of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, Matthew 13, 38. The field, he says, is the world, not the church. John the Baptist speaks about the entire Jewish people and says that eventually the true church will be separated from that people. Therefore, this passage is more against the adversaries than in favor of them, because it shows that the true and spiritual people are to be separated from the earthly people. Christ also speaks of the outward appearance of the church when he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a net, Matthew 13, 47, likewise ten virgins, Matthew 25, 1. He teaches that the church has been covered by a lot of evils, so that this stumbling block may not offend the pious, and so that we may know that the word and sacraments are powerful even when administered by the wicked. Meanwhile, he teaches that these godless people, although they have fellowship and outward signs, are not Christ's true kingdom and members. They are members of the devil's kingdom. We are not dreaming of a platonic state as some wickedly charge, but we do say that this church exists, truly believing in righteous people scattered throughout the whole world. We add the marks, the pure teaching of the gospel and the sacraments. This church is properly the pillar of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. For it keeps the pure gospel, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11. The foundation is the true knowledge of Christ and faith. There are also many weak persons who build upon the foundation stubble that will perish, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 3, holding certain harmful opinions. Nevertheless, because the weak do not overthrow the foundation, they are both forgiven and corrected. The writings of the Holy Fathers declare that sometimes even they built stubble upon the foundation, but this did not overthrow their faith. But most of those errors do overthrow faith. Our adversaries defend these errors. Among them is their condemnation of the article about forgiveness of sins, in which we say that the forgiveness of sins is received through faith. Likewise, it is a clear and deadly error when the adversaries teach that people merit the forgiveness of sins by loving God before grace. This is an example of removing the foundation, Christ. Likewise, why do we need faith if the sacraments justify by the outward act without a good motive on the part of the one using them? Just as the church has the promise that it will always have the Holy Spirit, so it also has warnings that there will be wicked teachers and wolves, Acts 20, 29. Yet the church in the proper sense has the Holy Spirit. Although wolves and wicked teachers run rampant in the church, they are not properly Christ's kingdom. Just as Lyra also testifies when he says, 
The church does not consist of people in power or ecclesiastical or secular dignity, because many princes and archbishops and others of lower rank have been found to have apostatized from the faith. Therefore, the church consists of those persons in whom there is a true knowledge and confession of faith and truth. We have said nothing more in our confession than what Lyra says here. So far, our reading for this week. Now, we do have to talk about the good and the bad, the, the wheat and the chaff, and this continues to go on because there is that going on in the church. And this is what the Augsburg Confession was all about. This is what the Apology is all about, taking care of those errors. And this is what Melanchthon is trying to do, to show that the true church of Jesus Christ is enlivened by the Holy Spirit that Jesus has sent upon it. And that faith in him is the foundation of the church. The foundation being what holds everything together. Because most people in their sins do not overthrow their faith. But the things that we have talked about, and like I said, Articles 4 and 5 will come back again, because that's exactly what Melanchthon has said the Romans are doing to overthrow the foundation, is by taking justification away from faith and making it something that you do, by making it taught that you can love God without grace, that you can love God without knowing what it means to be loved that this is something that you do, that you make possible in yourself. And so, yes, Melanchthon will agree, and so do all the Reformers and all the Lutheran teachers down through the years, that the church is the collection of saints and sinners brought together in this world to hear the true gospel and to receive the true sacraments as Christ intended them and as he instituted them. Yes, so the church is a threshing floor, as John the Baptizer says, but we also have to remember that the entire world is the threshing floor as well, that God is coming in his son Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead at the end of time. It is that time where the entire world, whether you are part of the church or not, will be threshed to see if you are wheat or chaff, see if you are a good fish or a bad fish, a sheep or a goat, or as also mentioned in the reading today, a wise or foolish virgin. All of these parables that Jesus says and John the baptizer and even the prophets in the Old Testament speak about with the understanding of what is the true church? The true church is the those who believe in Jesus Christ, whether the one who has died and rose again or the one who was coming to die and rise again. Both Testaments, same Jesus, the Jesus who taught his disciples is the same one who died, same one who rose from the dead. And that is what is the foundation of the church. That in him, we no longer have to worry about death, but only have to look forward to the life of the world to come with him. And that is the confessional corner this week. What is the church? It is the threshing floor, because we do allow the hypocrites and the wicked to be here so that they might be converted and repent of their evil and their hypocrisy. And that is the mission of the church, is to convert the wicked 
so that they might turn and embrace their Savior. This is Pastor Doug Minton wishing you God's richest blessings this week as you wrestle with theology. Amen.